And now another episode of Mind Escape with Michael and Maurice. Take it away, Michael. All right, folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 98 today, Denisovan Origins with Dr. Gregory Little. Uh, Dr. Gregory Little is a author of, with over 60 books. He is also a mound researcher of ancient Americas, and uh, he is also a psychologist. Uh, how are you doing, Gregory? I'm doing Greg, and thanks, guys, for having me on. Uh, I love your show. I've listened to a few of your episodes, and it's a pleasure to be here. Really thanks. is. Yeah, thanks for thanks coming for on. Thanks for joining us. Uh, so I really enjoyed Denisovan Origins. Um, what was your inspiration for that book? Because it seems like a common topic in this little occult or esoteric ancient civilization community right now with what was happening in America before let's say native americans and the previous thought was that it was the clovis first theory but we you know through your work and other people's work we know that that might not be the case anymore well the inspiration for i have to give that uh, credit to andrew collins andrew collins is a british researcher uh very well known uh he's on ancient aliens all the time he's also on that new show with william shatner and and several others uh, Andrew uh, actually is is probably best known for for two things. Uh, one is he wrote a book about Atlantis back in 19 well 2000 is when it, the American version came out. Uh, he's been writing for a long time, starting the same. His first book came out the same year mine did, which was 1984. Okay, long time ago. Uh, and we both, uh, wrote books about the same thing. Neither one of us knew anything about each other until around the year 2000. Uh, at that time I was heavily involved in, uh, the Edgar Casey organization, the ARE mm -hmm. and in the ancient mysteries part of it, uh, along with my wife. And we were doing a, a monthly newsletter for the organization on ancient mysteries and they have this big conference every year and i got andrew to come over to this conference and to speak and that sort of started a friendship which has lasted now for these 19 years andrew was into gobekli tepe that's what he's really known for most of all he popularized the discovery of the site of gobekli tepe in turkey uh, and he actually told me about the Denisovans. Uh, he was, he wrote about it from pretty much the moment they were first discovered and identified in 2010. Uh, and I have been involved with, uh, research on native Americans, native American mounds, mounds in South America and, uh, really truly ancient history of the Americas since the 1980s. Uh, and I have been, I believed in Clovis first for a long time, up mm -hmm. until around 1994 or so, when I when I came to conclude that mainstream archaeology is more of a cult <laughs> than a science, that the way it operates is more of a cult than a science. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, basically, Andrew asked me to come on board on this book that he wanted to do on the Denisovans and human hybrids where they interbred with the Neanderthal and basically became us. He did the work on Europe on that, the European part of it, and the 
uh, rise of the Denisovans some 700,000 years ago, which is astonishing. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I picked it up in the Americas, which my part of it really begins with uh, not the discovery of the Americas in 1492, but actually probably around 300,000 years ago. Mm. There were probably proto-humans here in the Americas some 300,000 years ago, predominantly in South America. So that's kind of my how I got into it. It was Andrew that got me involved. Uh, we are currently working on a sort of a follow-up, which is on the beginning of shamanism and shamanistic ideas. Um, Andrew is also known for linking the three great pyramids of Giza at Egypt with the Cygnus constellation. Right. Cygnus wrote, is also uh, Cygnus yeah. key. Cygnus uh, mystery and the Cygnus key, right? Yeah. The first one was the Cygnus mystery, then the Cygnus key. I made a film uh, on the Cygnus mystery and then Andrew went over to Egypt with uh, support from the Casey organization to look for a cave system under Giza, mm -hmm. which he incredibly found. Uh, I remember talking with him when he actually found it shortly thereafter, and he was so excited. They, they found this cave that literally led under the Giza Plateau. Uh, he took the evidence to Zahi Hawass, and uh, Zahi said it didn't exist. Even though right. they had the evidence Sounds on all about that. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, Zahi then had this show called uh, Chasing Mummies, which right. was on the History Channel. And it's really a fascinating story. And so there's a, there's a film on this, uh, and it's called The Lost Caves of Giza. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's had way over a million views, and it has Zahi's Chasing Mummies information in it. Uh, and Zahi took a film crew from the United States to this cave system, which didn't exist, went in it for the exact length that Andrew uh, and his wife and another person said that they went, which was over 330 feet in this cave. Uh, and Zahi said on that show, it was the greatest adventure he had ever had at Giza. Wow. Yet on his website, it still says this cave system does not exist. So Andrew did a book on that, too. So that's uh, I mean, Andrew really was the uh, the person who spurred this book, Denise of an Origins. And I, I really owe it to him. Now, I, of course, I did the stuff on the Americas, uh, right. which I'm primarily interested in. Yeah, so let's talk about the book a little bit. So the first sure. part, the first part is his part where he's writing, and it's more like what you're talking about, Gobekli Tepe, um, and, and those common themes having to do with it, and the discovery of the Denisovans too. Right. Yeah. So is that how you pronounce it too? By the way, I, yeah, I, well, okay. I say Denisovan, it, but I I'll change it if you're telling me uh, Denisovan. Andrew is. Andrew says uh, this is a it's a weird point of controversy. Uh, the name. Denisovan comes from where it was discovered. It is a cave in the Altai Mountains of Siberia, which mm. is in that part is in Russia. Right. And there was a monk who lived in that cave by the name of Denis. Mm. And when they went in to excavate it, they excavated it. They're down now to over 100,000 years in it. Uh, they found, of course, they found uh, human remains and then they found Neanderthals and they discovered a hybrid of Neanderthals and the Denisovans. Then they now they've gotten to the Denisovan layers. So Andrew claims that it is Denisovan. 
you will hear other people British say Denisovan. Right. I don't care. And frankly, <laughs> I don't think the Denisovans would care either. Right. Uh, and it, I have the same discussion when people talk about American tribes, Indian tribes, and the 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 names of the tribes are are only historic names, and they're usually the names that the Spanish or the uh, English or French explorers gave them when they right. were first discovered. But we don't really know what these tribes were called before historic times. Nobody really knows, basically because they all died out because of disease. Another whole story. But I call them Denisovans. Andrew calls them the Denisovans. I've heard Graham Hancock in person say both Denisovans and Denisovan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whatever. Andrew <laughs> insists on Denisovans, and I'm just used to I'll saying that. I'll try and change it, but if I keep going back to well, Denisovans. Well, if you get Graham on, yeah. say Denisovans. And <laughs> um, yeah, that might be a tough get, though. Uh he, uh, not as much as you yeah, might think. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's a, he's one of my favorites, but uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's, a bu- guy. he's a busy guy. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so the first part is Andrew writing, then the second part is you writing about the ancient Americas and um, DNA, mitochondrial DNA, yeah. nuclear DNA, and the differences between the, the, the different types of DNA and what, what it means and everything. Uh, but, yeah, you start off with talking about Clovis first and the timelines and everything. What I found interesting was when you brought up how the way we look at history. So we only look at history in the context of North America and English and British people coming over. But you talk about how in South America, they have a different set of, of history timelines. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's, that's, it's actually kind of sad. All the whole story of the Americas is sad. I'll try to keep it a little upbeat though. Um, of course you live in North America. I live in North America. When I went to college, when I went to, I went to high school in Pennsylvania and elementary school in Pennsylvania, uh, and history started in 1492. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what was in our history books. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Mm-hmm. We didn't learn anything about South America when I was in school. Nothing. Uh, we didn't learn anything about the Indians. The only thing we learned is that Columbus got here. There was almost nobody here. America was wide open. There was, you know, lots of trees and forests and animals and and natural resources that could be exploited and all that. But everybody got the idea there was nobody here. So we know now the lowest number that anybody gives for the population at the time of Columbus's discovery was 57 million. Now, almost nobody believes that there were 57 million people here now. All of the experts say there were at least 150 million people. And all the explorers that came in found vast fields of corn squash, beans. They found city after city, town after town. I mean, it was densely populated. There were people all over. Now, most of us are only familiar with American history. We'll go back to that. And we never learned about much about what went on in South America or Central America. We all know we've heard of Pizarro and we've heard of Mexico, how Cortez went into Mexico City and destroyed it. Uh, which was then uh, Tenochtitlan, mm-hmm. uh, and there were some pyramids down there, but almost nobody up here realizes how vast it was. But beyond that, 
all of our textbooks, all the textbooks that I had in anthropology, and I took two courses, one in anthropology, one in archaeology in college at what was then Memphis State University. It's now the University of Memphis. I hate it when they change the name <laughs> of your school, by yeah, the way. Yeah. People ask me all the time, where did Memphis State go? And I said, right. well, it's in the exact same place. It's now got a sign that says University of Memphis. But anyway, uh, we're not told anything about South America. Well, if you get South American textbooks and if you can get translations or if you yourself can read Spanish textbooks and Spanish professional journals in archaeology, you will see that there has been a battle that's been going on for decades. North American archaeologists have ignored the research that has gone on by South American archaeologists for many, many reasons. The reason that they say is that it's endemic, that it's a type of racism, it's a type of cultural bias, mm -hmm. and it's also sexism. The majority of the South American archaeologists that have done an incredible amount of work there are female, they're Hispanic, and almost all of them went to universities in South America, or they went to universities in Spain, mm -hmm. and North American archaeologists look down upon it. They simply degrade them, and they simply say they're not very scientific. We don't believe their findings. For example, for about see from the 80s, I didn't realize this when I was actually getting involved in things in the 80s, but since the 1980s, there has been a large group of South American archaeologists led by female PhDs who have claimed that there are areas in Brazil that have cave art that goes back a minimum of 50,000 years. Yeah, you mentioned that in the there, book. There are dozens of sites in South America that go back to 50,000 years and 30,000 years that even predates any cave art in Europe. There's nothing in Europe that's even as old as that. There yeah. are site, There is a site about 50 miles south of Mexico City that the U.S. Geological Survey did the research on. It was dated to 300,000 years ago. Wow. Now, North American archaeologists, you can look all this up in the textbooks, and they'll simply say that it can't be, therefore it isn't. They say there are no timelines, there were no humans who could have possibly made this site, therefore something is wrong. Either the archaeologists doing the work were incompetent and somehow misinterpreted, uh, they misinterpreted what they dug up, or they did the research wrong, or they're, the final thing they always pull out, well, it's a hoax. Someone mm -hmm. planted all this, and it's a hoax. But there are dozens of sites in South America that go back to 50,000 years or more. Now, the, uh, the, really, the, the last piece of this is that they say North American archaeologists claim that anybody who came to the Americas in prehistoric times had to come across what is known as Beringia, which is the landmass that was exposed between Siberian Asia and Alaska at the end, toward the end of the last ice age. Sea levels were lower. There was ice up there, but an ice corridor opened up, and all those people came over. That's where Clovis first really began too. Mm 
And the idea was up until 1997 that all of the people that came into the Americas came over in a couple of waves, massive waves of people, Siberian nomads who came into North America, then spread everywhere and raced down to Tierra del Fuego, which is the southern tip of South America, by roughly 8000 B.C. or so. So in, in 2,000 years, in a 2,000-year span, they populated all of the Americas. That was the idea up till 1997. But even after, even after North American archaeologists said, okay, we're not, that's not correct. We know there were people here before. But they all came across from Siberia into North America because the idea of we were first is a prize Mm-hmm. Now, it's like a North American archaeologist can hold it up as like a prize and say, we win. We were first. Now, I didn't come up with that. That is in the South American textbooks and journal articles they've written. And they say they want North American archaeologists cling to that like it's a prize of some kind being first. So they say even if they even if they sailed along the coastline. And they might have touched California. There's a site in California that last year was dated to 133,000 B.C. Is that That's uh, the San Diego one? Or it's near San Diego, yeah. yes. Yeah. All these sites are very close to San Diego, the ones out there. Even there were sites uh, found in San Diego. Luis Alvarez was one. Uh, and they found a number of, of sites out there, all of which were dismissed by mainstream archaeology. Now, whether or not those sites are are really there or not, or whether they actually exist and they are human-made, I don't know that. I know the ones in South America are, and I know South America is more important for other reasons, and that gets into the mounds. South America had mound, the oldest mound there, was built in 8,400 B.C., 10,400 years ago. So the first mound in South America is more than 10,000 years old. The first mound in North America dates to 4,000 B.C. And that is a small mound in, it's called Monticeno in southern Louisiana. It's actually near um, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. It doesn't exist anymore, but that was it. And you mentioned, Uh, uh, what, 8,400-year-old one in Bolivia and then an 8,000-year-old one in Brazil, I believe. Yeah, there are several of them there. Uh, Bolivia has the oldest one known right now. It's in the Bolivian Highlands, which is also in the Amazon Basin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the oldest that we know of right now. And that predates anything in Egypt, of course. There's nothing in Egypt that dates that far back. Right. That's incredible if you think about it. It's crazy. I mean, yeah, it's... Sure. Yes. It, so it also, too, isn't in uh, California, Is it, how far is that? Is it Caso Rock Art District where they don't know how old those... Um, those I'm not sure look. that I'm not sure where that is. What I did, anything yeah. that was rock art that nobody knows how old it was, I just steered away from that. <laughs> I was trying right. to be as as accurate as I possibly sure. could be, uh, and anything that was that was really controversial that didn't have solid dates, I just didn't even want to talk about it. I didn't want to speculate on it, but it ultimately that didn't matter, right? Uh, because we've been called racist by mainstream archaeologists already, just like Graham Hancock. Recently, if you get on certain Twitter sites, 
and certain Facebook sites and you look at certain archaeologist blogs, they say Graham Hancock is racist, point blank. And the reason he's racist, number one, he's white, which means he must be. Number two, he's from Europe, which means he must be. But number three, he doesn't accept the mainstream American archaeological view of Native Americans. And that means he's racist, even though he says that the descendants of Native American indigenous populations built the mounds. They're the ones who were here. Uh, he says that point blank. So do we. I've yeah, always he's the said, furthest and yeah. from reading your book. Yeah, it's you like guys a are massive pretty, contradiction. Well, it's there's a I couple know. bloggers out there, and we're not going to talk. I don't even give those people air to breathe. But um, right, right. there's a couple people out there that keep circulating the same kind of narratives. There's an archaeologist yep. lady that does um, oh, yeah. satellite archaeology who's just not a good person. And then there's also um a blogger so again we won't give those people air but yeah there's people out there circulating those types of um i don't know it's just like why are you going to even they say the same thing about ancient aliens i don't believe that aliens built anything megalithic structures or anything but it's a it's a fun show to watch and if people want to watch it and believe what they want i don't see any pro what's the difference between that and tons of other things i don't really that's exactly what i put in the book i have a couple of mainstream archaeologists who are skeptics who are friends of mine we don't (laughs) i don't mention their names they've asked me not to do that and i won't but the argument that i've had with them is this even the people that are on ancient aliens that appear there, they do, and I know many of them personally, they do not all believe the way the show spins what they right, say. Right, that right. is that aliens did it all. But what I've said is this. It's an extreme – I have seen more archaeological sites on that show. Mm-hmm. that yeah. I would never, yeah. ever get to see under right. any circumstances, and archaeologists never go there. I'm not they afraid to say it. that's how I found out about Gobekli Tepe like 10 years ago. Well, there or, you yeah, go. Yeah, sure. Well, that's, so. that's your biggest support is if, if anything, it shows you some of these places and, you know, you got to yeah. be your own judge of what's real or what's not. But I was actually thinking when you were saying they, they're denying all this stuff, it reminds me of these people that deny the dinosaur bones and how funny oh, we yeah. think that is. But <laughs> it's 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 crazy that these people are still in these mindsets. Well, there's a, there's a skeptic, there's a skeptic who, uh, wrote about a, when we we talk about giants, we talk about, um, these skeletons found in mainly in American mounds that are seven to eight and a half feet tall. Those are giants. And they Mm -hmm. are, if you've ever stood next to somebody that's eight feet tall, somebody like Shaq O'Neal, who's almost that big. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, you're, he's going to, you're going to feel like you're standing next to a giant. And I've done that before. I've stood next to these people. Probably someone you never did, Wilt Chamberlain, which he's he's you know he's not around, but I stood right. next to Wilt Chamberlain and I felt like a midget next to him. And he uh-huh. was just enormous. But anyway, uh, this skeptic said, "Oh, all of those bones in those mounds, they had gotten wet and then they froze, and then they got wet and then they froze, and over and over." And he said, "Oh, there's a textbook that says as they get wet and freeze over and over, they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and could be mistaken for a giant." Which I actually pulled that textbook, pulled to the exact page he was quoting from, and it didn't say that at all. It said that when they get wet and freeze, they shatter, they splinter mm-hmm. and they shatter. That's it, and it just keeps splintering and shattering until it turns into nothing but powder. 
So I wrote a, a thing that said, oh, you're saying that dinosaurs actually, since they were, you know, 50, 60, 70 million exactly. years old, they must have been the size of a dog. <laughs> and then over the 60, 70 million years, they've just simply frozen and and thawed out so many times they got as big as a modern dinosaur is what we see in the bones. So, I mean, it's just stupid. It's all stupid. Drives me up the wall, though, just because some of these people should be after the truth. We What we're really after is the truth. We want to know what really went on. When we speculate, we say we're speculating. I wrote a summary at the end of that book about what the evidence seems to point to, and I said at the beginning of it, this is a summary, a possible summary, something that I suspect part of it is true, and maybe we'll change it in the future. Mm-hmm. But right now, it's the best. We take the best evidence and kind of come up with a, a possible scenario. But that's not good enough. You can't do that unless you're a mainstream archaeologist. And then you have to stay with the accepted belief system. That is the problem here. Sure. But I've, I've ranted enough about that. Yeah, so uh, let's get into the DNA stuff. So you oh, yeah. you talk about um, the mitochondrial Eve, and then you go into the different Halop groups like A, B, C, D, um, and then the discovery of X. So why don't you go into yeah. a little well, bit? Well, that's to me, that's just interesting. Um, it's fascinating. Uh, a lot of my background is in genetics um, and I wrote a textbook that included a lot year, many years ago, uh, 19 years ago now, a textbook in psychopharmacology, uh, and it had a big section on genetics in it. So back in the 1980s, the middle 1980s, the National Institutes of Health uh, contracted with Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, to try to figure out why Native American tribes such as the Pima in Arizona and the Blackfeet, which are up in around the Great Lakes, why they had certain genetic disorders. So the in part of this contract was Emory was going to collect their human DNA or nuclear DNA, which is inside all of our cells. The human body has about 50 trillion cells. That's a lot of cells. Now, except for your red blood cells, which is an exception, everything has an exception, uh, inside the exact center of your cell is a little little cluster called a nucleus, and inside that nucleus is human DNA, and he, everybody knows about human DNA, some anyway, and human DNA is like a, it's called a double helix, which basically, if you think of a ladder, you just need to think of a ladder. And the ladder is very long, and each rung of the ladder has two amino acids clicking together to create a rung. So you have an amino acid and an amino acid creating a rung. Above that, you have another amino acid and another amino acid creating a rung. Well, there are six billion rungs in human nuclear DNA, and that DNA twists together. It keeps twisting together. And as it twists together, it pulls together. This is the double helix. That's why it's called that. Mm -hmm. And it becomes a clump. If you could actually unwind it and lay it flat, this is not an exaggeration. This is scientifically demonstrable. It would be six feet long. And that's inside all those cells in your body. That's crazy. But that's 
human DNA. Now, because if the reason I explain that is that it's very difficult to unwind that, say, in ancient bones, to pull, to get a cell out of an ancient bone or tooth. Tooth, teeth are really good for DNA. Uh, it's really hard to get it out. It degrades over time. And then they have to literally unwind it and begin figuring out what the amino acids are. That's called sequencing. They sequence those to figure out what the linkages are. There is another type of DNA that is in these little organelles inside each cell. So you have the human DNA in the center, but floating around in the um, water part, it's actually like salt water of a cell, are organelles called mitochondria. The mitochondria, there's hundreds of them in every one of your cells, hundreds, not an exaggeration. Some cells have thousands of them, so they are incredibly small. What they are is a type of vestigial bacteria that long, long ago in, in evolution moved into cells and to allow multi-celled organisms and to allow the cell to get usable energy. So the mitochondria with us, with humans, they take glucose, which are sugar molecules. They will take glucose and that glucose is taken to them by insulin. And that, remember I said that they were doing studies on diseases. Well, the, the uh, Pima have the highest rate of obesity in the world. They have people born with type 2 diabetes, a newborn baby born with type 2 diabetes, which, you, which you, is, it's almost unheard of. You get type 2 diabetes when you're in middle age or you're older and you're very much overweight and you eat too much sugar. Your body becomes resistant to insulin. The insulin doesn't work to get the sugar into the cells for the mitochondria. So they decided to look at the mitochondria as a bacteria. The mitochondria reproduce on their own. That's really important to understand. They're a bacteria that's in all of our cells. They're also found in dinosaurs because they're multicelled organisms and plants. They were found in virtually all animals. So all, all living animals have mitochondria in them and almost all plants do. So Emory decided that they were going to look at human DNA to try and find what the diseases were, where the diseases were encoded and also look at mitochondrial DNA. When they did that, because mitochondrial DNA is such a simple structure, it's only got 50,000 or so of these linkages to amino acids. Human DNA has billions of, six right. billion. Mitochondria have just, you know, 50,000 or so. So they decided when they did this, we'd look, they'd look at the mitochondria and, and believed that all of the mitochondria DNA would be identical. They were absolutely shocked when they found, they weren't identical, they found four distinctive types. They called them haplogroups, and the word haplogroup simply means a distinctive type. Hmm. And the haplogroups, because they were the first found, they conveniently labeled A, B, C, and D. Makes mm -hmm. perfect sense. Not knowing that there may be a whole bunch other, of others coming. So immediately when they published this research, 
many geneticists and archaeologists got the idea of, well, we, this was found in Native Americans. We could prove that Native Americans came from Siberia and Asia. If we could go over there, get modern Siberians, get their mitochondrial DNA, and see if it matches. And they did, almost immediately. And they found the Siberian nomads that lived over there had A, C, and D. Later, they found B, haplogroup B, they found that mainly in the areas of the South Pacific and China. Uh, the actual origin of it's probably the island of Taiwan uh, off of China, but that's another story. Now, at, again, at the time, they didn't know that there were going to be a whole bunch more. So they expanded this research with Native Americans, living Native Americans at this point. This, we're still in the 1980s. And they kept finding A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. And then suddenly one popped up that didn't match A, B, C, or D. But they only found it in like 3% of all the samples that they tested. It was like 3%. Mm. And they, I don't know what this is. And they, it's, it's astonishing, this happened, an incredible coincidence. They called it X, haplogroup X. And in, their, in the actual article where they announced the discovery of haplogroup X, they said, we're calling it X, as in X, the unknown. Later, they found EFGHIJKL, on and on you go. And then later, they also found subgroups like A1, A2, A, A1, a, A1B, and it's just astonishing how many they are. And when I say subgroups, subclades of these haplogroups, they are mutations. That's how you have to look at them because that's literally what they are. The mitochondria duplicate themselves. That's what cell mitosis is. They are bacteria. They create more bacteria, identical copies of themselves. But every now and then, those copies have a duplication error, and the duplication error comes from the wrong amino acids clicking together. That's what it is. Lots of things can cause that. All human cancer is caused by that. There aren't any exceptions to it. Human cancer is always a duplication error that gets out of hand. Now, there are various things that can cause the duplication error. It can be that it's you're genetically programmed to have it. Sometimes too much uh, exposure to radiation from the sun or actual radiation. So they know all those things are, uh, they're, they're anomalies caused by duplication errors, uh, and each one creates a very specific haplotype or haplogroup. Now, the reason they're called Eve, you get all of your mitochondria from your mother. Mitochondrial DNA is the only DNA that is totally from your mother. It's maternal. The reason is, is not as complicated as it might seem, but both of you guys and all your listeners, whether they're male or female, they got all their mitochondria from their mother. So when a sperm and an egg combine, when, when, um, when a fetus is, is actually created through conception, what happens is this. The sperm has some of the male mitochondria in it, but the egg is much bigger. And the mother's body, which has a, an immune system, uh, detects the male mitochondria immediately and targets them for destruction. They are literally destroyed. 
And then that baby, as it forms, or the uh, the fetus, as it forms and develops, the mitochondria of the mother are the only ones that are left. And that's why we all carry mitochondria, or the mitochondria from our mother. Mm-hmm. The first person to have the genetic mutation of, of a, it's like if you're an A, and then you have a daughter, and then suddenly she develops a mutation. She could be A1. She would be a mitochondrial Eve, a mini Eve. The, 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 the weird thing about this, mitochondrial mutations occur more often than human DNA mutations, and it's considered a time machine. So if you read research on mitochondrial DNA, you will see that they'll give a time frame of when each one of those haplogroups began. And that is done by working out the mutations back in time. Now, you can't do that with living people. So that takes us to the second part of the research. They started testing bones and skeletal remains that had been pulled out of mounds over hundreds and hundreds of years. And that's when it got interesting. So that's when you get into the part about uh, giants, um, yep. uh, seven and who feet these tall, people eight were. feet tall, um, and yeah, who they were. And so in America, what are some of the more famous ones? Is it Cahokia? I mean, I'm in well, outside of Chicago. Well, Cahokia is a famous uh, mound site. It's about seven miles due east of St. Louis. Right. Now, if you stand on the mound in Cahokia, you can see the uh, downtown St. Louis. You can see the arch and all that. The mound itself is 100 feet tall. It's tall as a 10-story building. Its base is one acre bigger than the Great Pyramid at Giza. And inside, I mean, I love talking about mounds, inside of it, <laughs> Uh, it has a massive stone structure that has never been dug into, never been drilled into all the way through. Uh, it's probably a tomb. And when I say a massive stone structure, it's a two inside of this mound that is 14 acres, 100 feet tall. It's a truncated pyramid. Truncated means a flat top. So you have this massive mound. There's 120 acres at Cahok- 120 mounds at Cahokia which, by the way, all of Egypt has somewhere around 108 pyramids. So there's more mounds at this one site in Illinois than there are pyramids in all of Egypt. But the Cahokia Mound has in its base at the bottom a structure that's about 45 feet long and 30-some feet tall, two stories made out of stone. And we don't know what's in it. It was discovered in the late 1990s, but because the laws that were changed and so on, they can't go into it and look. But before 1990, archaeologists were able to dig into mounds all over the place, and they did. For example, the Smithsonian dug into 2,000 mounds from 1880. I know the exact date. I wish I could pull it here. Uh, 1882 to 1891. So in that nine nine year period, they dug into 2,000 mounds, and in those wow. out of those 2,000 mounds, uh, they they didn't find as many skeletal remains as you'd think because the Native Americans primarily cremated people. But the other thing they did is the leaders they often would put in these really extensive tombs. And they were stone tombs. They were sometimes log line tombs. A lot of these have been tested for the DNA, too. That's, so we're going to twist back to the DNA sure, in a moment. Yeah. But they found, the Smithsonian found 17 
skeletons that were seven to eight feet in height. Since then, since the Smithsonian finished, uh, the Carnegie Institution, the Smithsonian, the University of Kentucky, uh, oh, a, a bunch of other universities have pulled dozens of these seven to eight and a half foot tall skeletons out of mounds, mainly in the Ohio Valley, uh, some of them in the Mississippian River Valley area, but mainly out of the Ohio River Valley, which is not just the Ohio River, some of it's the Mississippi, the Kanawha uh, River or Kanoa River through West Virginia was the site where there were the most of them. Now, haplogroup X, the unknown, initially what got it, what, what became weird is that archaeologists couldn't find the haplogroup X over in Siberia. But very shortly after this research started, they started testing living populations all over the world, and X popped up in Europe, which drove the archaeologists crazy. There was a novel that came out by a white supremacist. This is the whole thing. This is the one story that has ruined it all. A white supremacist wrote a novel about haplogroup X and how Europeans came over and they were the first Americans. And that's why haplogroup X was found in Native Americans. Uh, but haplogroup X was found in Europe. And archaeologists immediately said, well, it must be that some white Europeans who were settlers came over and they mated with Native Americans. But it had to be white European women who made it, remember, it's always, it's always female DNA. Right. So if the haplogroup X came from Europe, it had to be females who mated with Native American men uh, to produce half Native American, half uh, European people. And that's where the X came from. But then they started testing all these bones that had been pulled out of mounds. And it turned out that haplogroup X was very heavily found out of mounds, particularly in the area around Pennsylvania and Ohio and Illinois. So in some mounds, 50% of the skeletal remains were haplogroup X, and they were dated much, much earlier uh, than any Europeans were here. So X came from somewhere else. What's weird about haplogroup X, why I say it's a coincidence, it's the only one today of all the 40-some major haplogroups of, of mitochondrial DNA where they haven't pinpointed the origin mm -hmm. and you can find the origin. It's really, it's just unreal because they've done tens of thousands of studies where they've removed ancient skeletal remains from cemeteries all over the world and from research that's been done all, all, all over the world. So they get the mitochondrial DNA. And remember I said that these are mutations that occur in a regular time frame, and they've worked their way backward. And so they've actually got a huge map of the entire world showing where each of the haplogroups and all the submutations began in a basic time frame. Right. But ultimately, there's a lot of guesswork in that. I guess I should add that because the mutation rate isn't, isn't set in stone. Well, I mean, all none of this stuff's really set in stone, right? No, it's, you look not, at like, it's interesting. Yeah, Thomas Kuhn's philosophy of science were always due for a, a paradigm shift or a scientific revolution at different points in uh, history. Well, we're so. in a paradigm shift here. It it yeah. caught, it it turned archaeology. It it flipped them over because of this this ability to go back in time. 
Uh, initially, they said, well, people came over 33,000 years ago, and that was in the 1980s. They said that that DNA evidence shows that people came to the Americas at least 33,000 years ago. In the 1980s, 10,000 or 11,000 BC was the earliest that they would accept anybody appeared in this country, and they were always the Clovis people, right. which that which maybe we should get into that. You have these giants <laughs> right. that appear. Nobody knows exactly who they are. We believe that they are Denisovan hybrids that are part Denisovan, part Neanderthal, and part modern human. Uh, the, the reason for this, the only people who could have been in, North, in say, South America 300,000 years ago probably wasn't modern humans like us. Homo sapiens sapiens couldn't have been us because everybody says we didn't exist then. It used to be when I was in school, we were told that modern humans developed roughly 60,000 years ago. Then we were told that modern humans might be 100,000 years old. Now the earliest anybody goes back is that us, modern humans, are no more than 200,000 years ago. We evolved out of others that were here, basically, mm -hmm. 200,000 years ago. The Denisovans were also around, kicking around then. Denise, we carry Denisovan DNA, and the Neanderthals were still around then. Neither one of them died out till at least 40,000 years ago. So all three species were around. We, so we think that the, the Denisovan hybrids represent those giants that were found in the mounds. Sure. And we believe they came over. I hate to, to say this, but it's from what we today call Europe. There was a group of people which Andrew identifies as the Swiderians who came from Asia, entered Europe, and particularly in the area around Portugal, Spain, and France, and became known as the Salutrians. Uh, and there's two, uh, there are two very well-known archaeologists. One of them is um, at the Smithsonian today who had put out the Salutrian hypothesis. And the Salutrian hypothesis says that this culture that was based in Europe, which ultimately came from Asia, crossed over much like the Vikings did, came into North America around 10,000 BC and became the Clovis culture. And it would have only taken no more than 150 individuals to become the Clovis culture. That's all it would have taken for it to spread. That's right. now been worked out too. And they call it Clovis because of the tools, right? The, um, yeah, the, the, tips. the first, yeah, the first, they're actually very large spear points. Right. Clovis, Clovis technology, they call it a technology. They're these huge spear points uh, that have a, a fluted ridges on them. Each side has a flute and a flute is a channel that goes from the top of the spear point to the bottom. And that channel on both sides makes the point really thin. It makes it pretty fragile, but it makes it really thin, and it's much more lethal then. It becomes much sharper. So they were put on the ends of these giant spears, and it, they were very, uh, very useful to take down like a woolly mammoth, a mastodon, uh, all of which were all over North America. There were horses and camels and ground sloth and saber-toothed tigers everywhere up until around 10,000 B.C., Mm -hmm. So the idea was the Clovis people were the first ones. 
They were Siberian nomads. They came over. This is not the the Salutrian hypothesis. This is the old one. They came over around 11,000 B.C., uh, from Siberia, they saw that North America had all these these wonderful animals that they could kill and eat, and they killed them all and they ate them by roughly 10,000 BC. They hunted them to extinction, and so they didn't need the Clovis points anymore. The first one was found at Clovis, New Mexico. That's how right. it got its name. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's uh, interesting stuff. But you're right. I mean, with all the evidence that's coming out now and all the stuff that Graham Hancock, you guys are doing, oh, yeah. all the researchers, it's definitely pointing towards older uh, civilizations, older traditions, that kind of stuff. So uh, so when we're talking about the mounds, what's the oldest mound in North America? Uh, at Monte Sano, 40, about 4,000 B.C. It's in Louisiana. There are lots of really interesting mounds uh, along the coast, Probably the oldest mounds in North America are underwater. Uh, there's a lot of them along the coast of Florida. Uh, some go as far up as South Carolina and Georgia, quite a few along the coast of Alabama. They're large shell and sand mounds that make geometric formations and geometric shapes. Uh, North America probably had one million mounds at one time. Wow. The the most extensive, and there's earthworks. The earthworks are, are, I'd love to mention them with mounds. They're almost always found in association with mounds. People think of a mound as a little tiny, like a ice cream cone laying on the ground. It's a right. little heap. And they always think, oh, there must be a burial in there. And sometimes there are. But there are gigantic, gigantic mounds that were 70 to 85 to 90 feet tall with sides so steep you couldn't climb to the top that in the base of them they did usually have a tomb those are called adena era mounds there are mounds mound complexes like at moundville alabama that is on like a 150 acre complex that has a series of 20 perfectly formed truncated pyramids around a circular area in the center, which is called a plaza. And there is a perfect mound in the center there. When I say a perfect mound, I mean, think of a pyramid with perfect shapes made of earth, and then the top is cut off so it's flat. And then mm -hmm. they would build a temple on the top of that. By the way, the temple at the top of the Cahokia Mound had 50-foot-high walls. Wow. It's like a five-story building on top of that hundred foot high mound. It's crazy. Uh, I mean, and yes, it just incredible stuff. People just don't know this, but the yeah, I've never heard of the one in Arizona. That's crazy. The, the, in, I don't know. I don't know where you guys live at, but chances are no matter where you are, I live outside of Chicago. Fine. So I actually would like to go down at some point and check out Cahokia. It's oh, Cahokia is very not cool. that far of a drive on your way down. Go yeah. to Newark, Ohio. Newark okay. is 50 miles to the east of Columbus. Mm. Newark is a it's, a, it's a small city, but in Newark, there's a place called Mound Builders Golf Course. <laughs> and it's a golf course that is erected incorporating an ancient mound site and earthwork that dates back to 500 BC. So this is a site that's 2,500 years old. So here's a a simple description of this, just the golf course. It is perfectly flat 
there is a large circular formation that encloses 20 acres. And when I say circle, all right, so the interior of the circle is perfectly flat. What forms the circle is a wall of earth that's 16 feet high around the outside, a perfect circle of earth, a linear line of earth. It's not a line. It's a curving circle of earth. And then it connects to a straight line on both sides of the circle and goes to an octagon that is that has 50 acres on the inside of it. Uh-huh. The walls of the octagon, which has eight sides, of course, are formed by earth, straight lines of earth. Those lines are rough. The lines are eight to 16 feet high. Now, this this still is there in pristine condition. You can't imagine what it's like. Words can't explain it. You have to see it. And you go, oh, my God, this why is this here? So inside the octagon, at all eight points of the octagon, there are truncated pyramids at each point. And they kind of enclose it. Well, this was a sacred enclosure. It was a perfect uh, calculator of eclipses. It followed the 18.61-year cycle of the moon. So you could perfectly predict eclipses. This was worked out uh, in the 80s by mainstream academics who, who published the work. Well, that's just one little tiny portion of the earthworks the geometric earthworks that were there. So imagine this, you have an interstate highway that goes from Newark due south to a place called Chillicothe, Ohio. Mm -hmm. So imagine a 150 foot wide highway. And then on each side of the highway, you build walls of earth. And the walls of earth are 50 feet wide and four feet tall. And you run it all 56 miles. That was there 2,500 years ago. And instead of concrete in the inside, it was white. They had this white sort of sand, perfectly flat, all the way to Chillicothe, where an identical circle and octagon. And there's about 20 of those formations around uh, Chillicothe, of these earthworks. And I haven't even begun to describe it. It's still there. It's just incredible. And I remember Andrew Collins, when we took him there the first time, he was living in the middle of Avebury, which is the world's largest um, henge. Mm -hmm. And it had the world's largest stone circle. And there is another site in Newark where this thing connected to, the circle and octagon connected to, to a henge identical to the one in England. It encloses 30 acres. It is a wall of earth that encloses 30 acres. On the inside, the the earth is roughly seven feet tall. On the inside of it, there's a moat. The moat is about eight feet deep. And on the, the very center of this hinge, there is a effigy mound of an eagle laying on its back with outstretched wings. Mm. And that it's identical to the site in England at Avebury. And it is still there. They call it the fairground circle uh, because it used to be the Ohio State Fair used to take place inside of it because it was so well protected. It had one opening into it. They didn't have to worry about fencing people out. They had the whole fairgrounds inside of it, of this circular formation. It's still there. It's incredible. Just seeing this is overwhelming, but people 
in America don't appreciate it and don't know all this stuff is here. They're all over the place. Right. Well, I don't blame most people, though, because... Well, I don't either. We didn't learn about it. Exactly. We didn't learn about it, and even you were describing your academic history in high school and and, uh, elementary school and stuff, and for us, we did learn about some South American stuff, the Incans and the Mayans and some things, but not really a whole lot. But when you look at the mounds in North America, there's there's other things, too. So you mentioned um, the Serpent Mound in... Ohio as when they were dating it, it was initially dated around, what was it? Um, a couple hundred BC and then they moved it up to 1100 CE and then they moved it back to 100 BC or something along those lines. And the archeologist says, we don't know what in the world we did. Right. (laughs) And the date, I mean, literally in the article, you say they don't don't remember even what they, yeah, you, you said that in the book that they don't even remember what they dated initially to come to that conclusion. Yeah, Serpent Mound is a quarter-mile-long, uncoiling serpent on the top of a uh, really an outcrop that has a gigantic meteorite under it. Uh, it's very magnetic there, uh, and it, it's it's incredible. It's the world's largest serpent effigy, at least it's earthen. There are others uh, in there are numerous other serpent effigies in the Americas. They're just not as famous as Serpent Mound, and they're not as well maintained as Serpent Mound. It is incredible, and a lot of strange things happen there to people. People have some strange experiences, and I've had my share there too. But that's another story. <laughs> Um, yeah, I want to go there. I was watching a, yeah, a little YouTube video on that. I don't think it's very far. Me and Mike should take a little adventure one you day. You could go to all, and there's another site uh, that was just unbelievable. If you can get into it, yeah, uh, yeah it's in uh, Portsmouth, Ohio. Okay. And you could just go straight down from where you are. Just go straight down. Yeah, we both, uh, well, we're both from the Detroit area. Maurice still lives there. I live outside of Chicago, so we're kind of in the region, and we've been... Yeah tossing around ideas mm-hmm. we're trying to make our first documentary here at some point so we've been tossing around different ideas but um so what i find fascinating too is that there's all these structures in america the mounds and um even rock art like you were mentioning earlier and different yeah. things but people don't know about them and partly it's because we're not learning about school partly because people just don't care about that kind of stuff. There's, It's kind of an esoteric thing or an esoteric tradition in yeah. some senses. So um, do you think, though, you feel from writing this book with Andrew and some of your past book was A Path of Souls and different yeah. things that you see a little bit of a changing of the guard with Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, Laird Scranton, all these kinds of guys talking about all these different topics? There is there is a there is a change going on. Um, actually, my the the book that I am, if it'd been the only thing I ever did out of all those books and things that I've had done, uh, it's the it's called the Illustrated Encyclopedia of Native American Mounds and Earthworks. Uh, and the first the first edition came out in two thousand nine. The second one came out in two thousand sixteen. Uh, and it's we start my wife and I started traveling to mounds around 1983. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I tell the story in Path of Souls of how that happened. Um, we had a shaman, uh, a one of the Cheyenne. Well, he was the Cheyenne arrow priest and his family stay with us uh, in Memphis back then. It's a long involved story, but he stayed with us for 30 days. Wow. Uh, and, and for some reason, I just got an amazing uh, interest in it and an obsession 
and we started visiting mounds. No one was at any of them when we went. We went, we have been to literally thousands of sites in the Americas and very remote sites. Uh, we have found the archaeologists don't want people to know where these are. And where I was going with this is um, when I did that book, I inquired uh, of several organizations about giving the locations out of mounds that have restricted addresses. Because what I was mainly trying to focus on were mounds that were accessible to the public, things they could go visit. And I wanted to put photos in them and instructions. Here's how, here's how you get there. So I asked for instructions. I said, you folks have all these, these places with restricted addresses where you don't want anybody to know where they are. But they're in the middle of a state park and there's right. signs in the state park. And I said, I don't want to violate laws here. They wouldn't even respond. I wow. got no, and even archaeologists that I've asked about it now, they don't even know how to answer that. So I just went ahead. If it if it was publicly accessible and the information was out there already, I just went ahead and listed it. But archaeologists, uh, American archaeologists, are fearful, and probably for some reasonably good reasons. Uh, that well, you do people, have grave robbing. That's and it. That stuff does occur, but. Um, we just spent 10 days in the uh, Southwest on the Navajo Nation, and we went to some really remote, they're called the Danita defensive sites. Never saw another person there. Had to go through arroyos and drive. It was, some of it was really stupid that I did driving. But anyway, uh, they were in just really remote places where there wasn't a road. Um, and they had... Um, carvings and paintings we really wanted to see these and get photos of them and it's just disgusting to see people putting their initials on this rock art mm -hmm. you see people putting their initials there and they'll put funny faces and stuff on it uh, and this is rock art that's thousands of years old so there's good reason why they don't want people to go to a lot of these sites but the ones that are in parks that are mounds and uh, I, I think they should really popularize that. That's my thing with ancient aliens. Ancient aliens is telling people about places they can go and see that no one else will tell them about. Right. They can't find, and they have incredible film, and they do have basically good archaeological information. Well, some of the sites. speculation I enjoy too, like talking about yeah. panspermia and things yeah, like yeah, fun, yeah. that are super yeah. realistic. But then you, the thing that I I don't like about the show is that they go well aliens built the pyramid you know they, they allude right. to that or they talk about it after somebody goes on some awesome rant about ancient civilizations then they'll correlate it back to that which yeah. i don't even think they have to do to be successful i mean i'm not the producer but i'm just saying like they there don't they don't have to do that to get what they're right. what they're getting out of it but i see what they're doing but sure so that brings up a good point though so when you're talking about this stuff uh, like I mentioned, that's how I found out about Gobekli Tepe like 10 years ago because it wasn't yeah. really that popular of a topic. And even though Graham Hancock wrote about it, um, Fingerprints of the Gods and Magicians of the Gods and uh, Klaus Schmidt was the archaeologist on that, you still wasn't that much out there. And then when you see TVs, the great the great uh, communicator in terms of topics and ideas. And once it started coming on TV, ancient aliens, and then other shows start picking it up. You start seeing it on other channels, uh, YouTube videos, Netflix documentaries and different things. Uh, now, now we're all in the game here. So 
I like that aspect of it. But again, I think that they could portray it a little bit differently, but again, it is what it is. Yeah. I, I, I actually, I like it. I, yeah, I find I it enjoyed. Think... I'm not going to lie. We've talked about it on the show. There, I'm not going to take uh, everything they say yeah. is to heart, but 10, 15% of the speculation is legitimate speculation that even scientists speculate on. Well, absolutely. So I think all that's good. And what, what Andrew and I have tried to do is take this mainstream information, not twist it around, but present it and really try to pull it all together into a package. And as I wrote in the book, one of the things mainstream archaeologists dislike very much are outsiders that they believe are mucking around in their little private bailiwick. Now, as, and a lot of them say, well, you shouldn't be interested in UFOs or you shouldn't be interested in this or giants or any of that because you're a psychologist. I will say that in <laughs> psychology, for many, many years, I was involved in this same stuff. My first book was a book about Carl Jung and his ideas about UFOs and things <laughs> seen in the sky, which was about Car Carl Jung's last book was about that. Wow. So I went to do a follow-up book. That's what I did. But I never in all those years had a single academic psychologist or a psychiatrist, many of whom I knew, they all said, that's great that you're interested in that. They said, I wish I had the time. You're interested in Indian mounds. That's great. Psychology is actually very accepting and open to people having professional hobbies, uh, mm -hmm. people having wide ranging interests. And I've had people say, well, you must be crazy because you're in this. Uh, archaeologists have said that and the skeptics. And what they don't understand is that everybody has eccentricities, and those eccentricities are probably what makes us interesting as individuals. Sure. And those eccentricities wind up making incredible discoveries. I think Troy was found by a very eccentric man. He had an eccentricity, and he wound up discovering Troy. And probably all of that stuff in South and Central America that was discovered by those explorers that had plenty of money and hired a load of people to take them into those jungles and see what was there, yeah. they were eccentrics, but they made some great discoveries. I mean, a lot I of the, that's great. a lot of the people we talk to, because we do a lot of different topics, you know, we'll do ancient civilizations, we do yes. psychedelics, we do the mind, we do consciousness, we do UFOs. So we, we cover all of those, the wide range that you're talking about. Um, I'm a musician, Maurice was a musician, and a lot of people we talk to are either former musicians, former artists, they have some connection to creating some sort of sure. art. And I think that when you look at that, this is somehow aligned with that, where whether it be pareidolia of the mind, uh, that we all just yeah. want to make connections to things, or if you're just a creative person in general, I think you're you're more open to suggestion or more open to new ideas than, let's say, somebody that's just reading books or is forced to take tests on things. And there's a very yeah. rigid mindset that you have to follow to get your couple hundred K a year and live a comfortable life, and that's all those people want. Yeah. But. Well, that's uh, what you just talked about is where this new book is going. I'm interested in the rituals they performed, exactly what they did, why they did it, what they believed in. They did believe we came from the stars. Uh, they did believe that we had a soul that returned to the stars. They gave certain places where we would return. The mound, Many mound sites are aligned to those, those stars uh, so that the soul could take a trip back there. Uh, they used hallucinogenics, there's no doubt about it, in these rituals, and they had a belief system 
Uh, you talked about pareidolia of the mind and our, our idea of trying to make connections. Uh, in that ancient world, they lived in a dark world and they lived that we cannot understand. When mm -hmm. I say a dark world, I mean they lived outside. They had connections to the soil. There is something about being connected to the earth and becoming harmonious with it. And I mean that in a very scientific sense to where you are resonating at yeah, the same frequency. resonance frequency as the earth. And all of us here today, chances are none of the three of us have physically touched the earth today. You probably have rubberized soles on. You are in a room right. that is isolated and insulated from the outside. You have artificial light and there are electromagnetic waves all around you going all different directions at the same time, not just from this electrical equipment we have, but from all the cell phones that are broadcasting around us, all of the phone calls that those cell towers are blipping out trying to find somebody. Every phone call goes everywhere at first. People mm -hmm. don't realize that, but we live in an electromagnetic cesspool. Yeah. Out of those, people think that, that their cell phone is creating like a beam or a wire that goes from their phone and directly goes to a cell tower. It doesn't. It creates a bubble of, electron, of electromagnetic energy, and it's that bubble that touches it. And those bubbles are all over the place. Sure. So the idea is in, in this, we are out of touch with nature. Uh, we have we live in what I love to call it an electromagnetic energy cesspool, uh, and we're just we're not in touch with it. Now, what that means is not as simple as what people might think, uh, but it might very well explain things like increases in ADHD, uh, attention deficit hyperactive activity disorder in children. Supposedly there's an increase in that. It could relate to other mental disorders. You know, we're told that a third of the population has a mental disorder. A well, third. I mean, I, I do. I have actually really bad clinical OCD that I've been able to, you know, I go to CBT and stuff. But Yes, um, CBT is great. That's my area. And CBT. I mean, I've been super fascinated with the the connection and the improvements with psychedelics and the possibility of the therapies sure. that those, you know, you're talking about shamanism. Well, Maybe yep. the fact that these people were using these natural plants, mushrooms, plant whatever, plant medicine, entheogens to heal some of these things. Because if you can just give yourself a mind reset for somebody like me who has OCD, yeah, one psilocybin experience and I'm back in the game, you know. So yeah. um, I, I think that there's something to be said about that. And I'm not a big... Yeah pill guy. I don't, I don't think that that's the answer. I think it's a bandaid. Uh, some people need to take them. And I, I, I honestly think that you should, it's an individual case by case basis, whatever yeah. works for you. We're all individual people with different needs. So, um, but yeah, you're right. I, I do think there's some connection from having this mental disorder, whatever you want to call it, that I think sometimes that if I have too much time to think, or I have which is a good thing too. It's a good and a bad thing when you have too much time to think and there's no flight or fight or flight because there's no yeah. saber tooth at our back or there's no right. uh, you know what's the modern day would be. Oh, I got to make money to survive. That's what our modern oh, yeah. day fight or flight is, right? So if there's not enough of that, I feel like you fall into these mind loops or these mind traps for somebody that has OCD, where the more time and and 
uh, space you have to think can be a good thing or a bad thing depending on the situation. But looking at our history, not having that time back then was probably why, I mean, who knows what people were thinking or what disorders people had back then. But I could see that our modern society with technology and stuff definitely has an impact and we're going through some sort of modern evolution of that. One of the things that really, like I said, we just, we just spent 10 days out on the Navajo reservation. We went to, we went into Utah at a place called uh, Hovenweep, which I had been to back in the eighties. Uh, and Hovenweep was one of the first sites, Anazazi sites where they had identified, uh, astronomical alignments to some of the openings in the towers that were there. And I wanted to go back for this new book that Andrew and I are doing and, the thing that shocked me first, we got out of the vehicle and we started walking around this massive site and it was so quiet. I could not, I mean, I just, we just stopped because you could hear nothing hmm. and I can't remember hearing nothing. That's awesome. Uh, like that. Uh, it's just, but they heard that. That's what, that was their environment back hmm. then. And when I say you can, when there's nothing out there to hear, every little sound that does occur becomes amplified and your senses become heightened. Mm -hmm. And at night, that sky, seeing that sky every night and seeing the Milky Way every night and having to have this hyper awareness, uh, all of that goes back to the shaman's world, which we just don't worry we might be able to have modern shaman, but in order to do it, I'm not sure we can do it in a studio. I think it <laughs> right. needs to be done in a different way. Uh, so, that, again, that first thing that just got me was no sound. It was dark. They touched the earth. And we are so out of touch. I'm not sure that it's explainable to people to understand for the, the typical person. I don't think we can explain it to them so they understand why these people did what they did and why they experienced things the way that they did. Because most of us think that, oh, we think that their experiences were similar to ours. And I don't right. believe that's the case. Mm -mm. They lived in a very different world, which we cannot really understand we can try to understand it and we can go to a certain degree of understanding and yeah taking uh taking some hallucinogenic substances can probably give you an idea of some of the things that they did and we do know in some of their rituals like that path of souls ritual we just briefly mentioned it mm -hmm. we know they use some hallucinogenic substances with particularly with the people who had someone die uh, and it was done at a specific time for a specific purpose. But I, one of the things I don't do, I never want to give people the idea that they were laying around all the time getting high. No, they didn't. They didn't. And, lay and we don't promote that on our show either. Oh, we're, I know we're, you. Know. We're very connected I try, to. I always try to say that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's smart because there is a lot of people out there that, well, I know. that are looking I, for that message. You know, I get on these shows and people say, "Oh, they were high. They got high a lot." And I said, "No, they didn't get high a lot. They had to go find food, and they had to go find heat." Either I mean, imagine if you were living in that place, Cahokia, for example. Cahokia today, they believe, had forty thousand people living in it. 
Those yeah. 40, and why did they leave? Some people pe believe they left because there was no wood left anywhere. That's what they burned. Sounds like an Easter Island scenario there. Well, exactly. I mean, you use up the resources, and actually, that's what the Navajo believed in. The Navajo believed in moving around to find an area that was in balance. And when it got out of balance, you moved and you went to another area that was in balance. The Hopi, on the other hand, believed that through rituals, you could change the balance of nature. And people don't recognize there are these massive philosophical differences between these ancient tribes. They don't recognize, but they're very, very different. And the Hopi and the Navajo are dramatically different. And in a way, it's unfortunate they've been stuffed together in the same area because the Hopi reservation sits right in the middle of the Navajo. Uh, and they did not get along very well at first, uh, up until the middle 1900s when the federal government tried to settle it all. Sure. Yeah, it's um, it's fascinating stuff. So I, as a psychologist, though, I mean, you have a different insight into some of these things. And you're right. I think that would be kind of in, insulting to have people call you crazy, even though... You're a psychologist. Uh, and just, just interested. That's in just something. It, yeah. That's just interested yeah. in stuff. Yeah. So it's it. I, I find that uh, very funny. And I don't know if if they're not a psychologist, how they can then make those assumptions. Uh -huh. um, but the, well, you just first, have to treat it like you're the wise. I mean, you have to just know that they're not on the well, same I level do, as you. I do know that the, the first time that happened was when I talked about being interested in Edgar Casey. And Edgar Casey, the probably the greatest psychic of all time in the United States, the father of holistic medicine. I was interested in Casey because I was curious how in the world can this guy give these psychic readings and then give a health diagnosis and then give a remedy to people. And then medicine actually published a whole bunch of studies in peer-reviewed journals following up on Edgar Casey's remedies. And they say that he was 85 to 88% right all the time. Wow. And the ones that, that they said he wasn't right on, it's not that he wasn't right. They couldn't follow up to find did the remedy work or not. Those people were no, they were, they could no longer access information on those people. So I was interested in that. And I was really interested in it because Edgar Casey claimed that at age 13, he had had an experience of an angel appearing to him in the woods in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, mm -hmm. while he was reading the Bible for the 13th time. And he was reading the story of Manoah, which is about an angel appearing to Manoah. And I just found that really fascinating. And the angel says to Casey, he's 13 years old, saying, what most would you like in your life? And he says, well, I guess I'd like to help people, especially children. And the angel uh -huh. says, it'll be yours and disappears. That is the beginning of Casey's psychic healing ability. And I've just found it interesting. How could he be correct? So as a psychologist, uh, I'm interested in it. And I was. It interests us, too. Say, We've done a couple episodes on Casey's yeah. sleeping prophet mm -hmm. and his ability to sleep on a book and then wake up right. and know what was inside the book. Or yeah. uh, you, you're right, giving. I've read a lot of his diagnosis and dream analysis and all those kinds of things. I think I have a couple audibles, too, maybe a search for God or something. Oh, great like, book. Yeah. That's the one I gave my wife, a search for God, many, many years ago. My wife is now the... Chairman of the board of the of all the Edgar Casey organizations. Chairman oh, wow. of the board. 
PhDs of uh, the Agar, the ARE Association for Research and Enlightenment, the Edgar Casey Foundation, and Atlantic University. Uh, and she's been on the board for many, many years. Sure. Uh, and we still remain very involved. We're there, Atlantis people. Uh, for many, many years and still are for that matter. Yeah, we just, we're, we're big. Edgar Casey. we've done Edgar Casey, Rudolf Steiner, we've done a lot of the guys. Um, but the, I actually, the weird thing is I got more, I knew about Edgar Casey, but I got more into him when Maurice and I started reading, I don't know if you've heard of the Urantia papers, but oh, yeah. I was tra- we were trying to figure out who wrote this thing, and he was one of the candidates, but the timelines and the... Yeah, I don't think no, he didn't. Up. He didn't yeah, exactly, the I mean, timelines. Yeah. But but that was a suggestion because of the guy that supposedly was channeling the Urantia papers was... He had some uh, of the same characteristics. Well, yeah, yeah sleep, he was sleeping and would, you know, talk, talk in his sleep, and they would write it down and that kind of stuff, so... Uh, but yeah, we, we find all that kind of stuff interesting and is it true or not? I don't, I don't know, but I find it interesting and I like looking into it. And I think that some of these guys like Edgar Casey, Rudolf Steiner do have some sort of connection, whether, whether it's yeah, there's the, something the universe there, or something metaphysical yeah. or even like a Tesla. Like we look at some of the greatest minds of our time and, yeah. uh, visionaries and Steve jobs, you know, we're all using iPhones and iMacs and, yep. uh, iPads and everything. So when you look at these people, they, they are tapping into something. What is it? I don't know. But again, we find this stuff interesting too. And there's always going to be people that talk shit and poo poo. Yeah. And it's, it just is what it is. I just, I usually ignore it unless somebody just keeps coming, but yeah. um, it, it, yeah. it really depends. But. Casey had a really cool explanation for it. I don't know how much time you have, but this, the you explanation. Keep going as long as you want. Actually, and let me ask you this too. Can you do an extra like, 10 minutes afterwards for our Patreon. I just want to do sure. a, a continue oh, the mystical absolutely. stuff, but we can, I want to get back to the, uh, after you say what you're going to say, I want to get a little yeah. bit back to the Denisovan stuff before. Gotcha. We okay. Well, Casey, Casey said that he accessed what he called the Akashic record. And so uh, you, I'm sure you've heard that before yeah, the uh-huh. Akashic record, but he explained it. And he said that all of our actions, everything we do creates vibrations. And almost elected, he he used the term electromagnetic and electrical a few times, but uh, he said that these are these create vibrations and waves. And he said that these waves last for all time and they create grooves like the grooves in a vinyl record and that the Akashic record is actually these grooves. And he was able to somehow visit these grooves and see what it was. Mm. He could interpret it or it would read itself back to him. So that's that's how he defined the Akashic record. Now, whether and I'm really big into the electromagnetic stuff, I believe that uh, the electromagnetic energy spectrum and certain brain 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 chemistry and plasma physics all relate to everything yeah, what from about UFOs the, el- the electric uh, universe theory ah uh, yeah yeah uh so but anyway that's that was Casey's explanation and yeah we can go back and tie up the the Denisovans or Denisovans or whatever you want to call <laughs> Denisovans that one's going to be hard i got the Denisovan on the mind plus, know, plus we were while, camping no. this last year Maurice was just yelling Denisovan in the middle of the woods like he was one so <laughs> 
just trying to communicate. Get on that frequency, baby. <laughs> the year before uh, that, right. he was yelling Melchizedek. When this guy gets goofy, he he starts yelling uh, mystical things. I don't know. Okay, goofy, huh? All right, <laughs> well, very good. Doesn't mean you're crazy. No, no, <laughs> but by goofy, I mean you know, there's there might be some cannabis or some hey, look, alcohol the most... or. The most interesting people are a bit eccentric. They sure. have their eccentricities, and I think that is great. It'd be terrible if nobody was eccentric. Exactly. Well said. Yeah. All right, All right so, so let's let's get back. So what do we know, as far as skeletons or bone fragments, what do we have on the Denisovans at this point? Is there any... Is that's there, a... Is there full, good. is there full, um, skeletons or just, I know there's jaw pieces and stuff like that. But. Yeah. Well, it, it started out when they were first discovered and identified in 2010, it started out, there were a couple of, uh, pieces of finger. Like, I don't know if your people could see it, but like a yeah. finger bone, right. just a bit. And then another piece of finger and then another piece of finger and then a tooth and then uh, in recent years, very recent years, they have found a jawbone in China. They have found other bones elsewhere, but not a full skeleton. Right now, I'd say that probably there are five to six different areas where Denisovan remains have been identified as Denisovan. There are lots of remains now. I would bet that labs all over the place are testing that they had in storage that they're trying that they were unknown and they want to simply know if they're Denisovan. The only way to tell is to do the genetic testing on it, do the sequencing to see if it matches. So that's what was found in, in terms of their skeletal remains. Why do you think, uh, they think have, there's so little evidence? And I think this goes to even like Australopithecus and Lucy and all these. Is Why do you think it's so hard to find? Do you think that it, they're just so deep in the ground or we're not looking in the right places? Well, I, I think one of the issues goes back to the Clovis controversy in, in the Americas. And that is, if you actually read back in 1997 and 98, when the Clovis barrier was breached, and mainstream archaeologists realized that there were people here before Clovis, a lot of the archaeologists went back to the previous Clovis sites in America, which there are thousands of Clovis sites in North America. So they went back to those sites and they dug deeper, and then they found stuff. When they initially found it, what they wrote is, there was no reason to dig deeper because we knew there was nothing there. Clovis was first. Why waste time and money after we find the Clovis layer and dig deeper when we know there's nothing there? Right. Well, I mean, that's in the, think of science saying that. We already know there's nothing there. There's right. who's going down and looking for it because there's nothing there. So they went back and they started finding it everywhere. And to some extent, that has hampered the search for older remains in the Americas. However... There are very few skeletons in North America or South America that are more than 10,000 years old for a very good reason. The conditions that are required to keep skeletons, skeletal remains somewhat intact that long, are just not here. Right. Uh, Africa is where they found all the ones that are millions of years old because it's in incredibly dry conditions. Gotcha. Where they have found them, like a Dolvai Gorge is just a, it's just, it's a desert. It's bone dry. So everywhere. what about the moisture though, that, that hampers the, the, 
the skeletal remains in North America? Does it do something? Does it break it down? Well, quicker? it degrades it. They become okay. powder. They gotcha. they literally degrade into you know dust becomes dust. And do we do we know um, how long that takes of that process? Uh, you know, I think it boy yeah, that's in textbooks, but it depends upon the pH of the soil. It depends upon, you know, acid rain is probably complicated things too. I suspect acid rain degrades them faster now if they're getting wet. Mm -hmm. But bones and mounds have been very well maintained. Uh, and because mounds, particularly those mounds that had the stone chambers, the skeletal remains were dry, totally dry. They'd never been wet. Uh, and that's why the, that's so profound that they found those seven and eight footers there. But again, Native Americans... We know in the ancient world, they tried to cremate all the remains anyway. They burned them. Right. So they wouldn't, there wouldn't be any remaining. Right. They would be nothing but ash. They wouldn't be found. And in, in other places, other parts of the world, we know cremation was used. The people who were interred in these tombs where you would expect some preservation to occur, the people were generally the elite. The rulers, the priests, the shaman, uh, perhaps uh, the the ruler's parents, something like that. Uh, but generally, the the normal population was cremated. They were not put in these tombs, so you wouldn't expect to find many. Uh, and the ones that have been found, like in Africa, of the the really old, the the millions of years when those are not found in tombs. They're simply somebody that died, and they totally dried out, and then sand eventually covered it, and it lasted that so long. So it's like a natural mummy in some sense. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. that's interesting. Um, well, that's why the mummies are so so easy to find uh, in in Peru. Uh, they're they're very easy to the find. Nazca mummies. And yeah, the Nazca mummies. They're they're it's totally dry there, right. and that's why. And it it doesn't rain. That's why the Nazca lines have remained for so long. Mm. You know, if they had a few violent rainstorms go through there, those lines wouldn't last very long. That's, yeah, good point. Yeah. Who knows where? Yeah, all over the world they could be, but they've been, been washed out. away. Absolutely. Absolutely. That that is absolutely true. What about ice? So like uh what was the uh uh the guy that they found in the Alps that was uh is it Ozeal oh, or o yeah, yeah. Ozi uh Uzi, yeah. Uzi, Uzi. Uzi, Uzi. Something like that. Yeah, yeah, that Ozi. The a couple of those have been found. You know, a bog man was found in Florida uh that dated to nine thousand years ago. He was haplogroup X, by the way. Okay. <laughs> there are bogs in Florida. Just like there's bogs in England where they yeah. found bog men. Uh, and then they found remains up in Washington State that are eight and nine thousand years ago uh, that I, I don't understand how these have remained. They've been found along washed out parts of rivers in Washington State. Uh, and those are haplogroup X, too. Mm. They're invariably they they turn up to be haplogroup X. Uh, but Utsi, uh, I don't think anybody did the. Um, the mitochondrial DNA testing on Utsi, because I think he was found, I thought it was before then, but they might have done the, the DNA testing on, but I haven't paid attention right. really to the stuff from Europe. Just haven't paid attention. Sure. I haven't paid attention to Russia. Well, I'm because sure there's a, Russia's Siberia. huge. Yeah, Russia's yeah, huge, and I'm sure there's a Siberia. lot of, who knows what's going on, what they have going oh, on. Oh, yeah. And I, I would assume based on 
what we know is if they found something, they're not sharing it anyway. So, so what, where all this led us to, what the conclusion is, yeah, where it led us to this conclusion, it's that the first people in the Americas came into South America from probably the area of Australia, New Zealand, and some of the islands in the South Pacific. And there's a thing called the Southern Route. If you go to museums in South America right. or in like Guatemala, you'll see, they'll say that's where the first Americans came from. It's in the maps they have in their museums. First Americans came from there around 50,000 years ago, but we believe they came much earlier. If you actually got on a raft in New Zealand, Southern New Zealand, you got on a raft and you floated. It would take you a hundred days, and you'd want after a hundred days you'd wind up along the coast of Chile, yeah, right like in the middle. Yeah, like Thor Heyerdahl, Contiki. Yep. So we know that's the southern route. That's just floating. But these people had canoes, uh, canoes that held over a hundred people. Wow. We know they had that. In some of them, they had a hundred and fifty people. Um, but we think the first people came over then. They probably weren't real successful. Maybe 300,000 years ago that happened. Then a whole bunch more came over around 50,000 years ago. Around 30,000 years ago is when Beringia opened up and people started coming in from Beringia. There was another influx around 15,000 years ago from Beringia, and all those represented haplogroups A, B, C, and D. And they and they're they're really haplogroup B is really found in America's Southwest and in South America. Haplogroups mm. A is found in South America, and that appears to be a pretty warlike group. Haplogroup X, we believe, came in around 11,000 BC. It was the Salutrians, who we call the Clovis people. Right. They came in from Europe. They're not Europeans, but you know, and it, who knows what they called where they came from, but they came in from there. Uh, and because of their stone technology, they and other things that they could do, um, their their tool making ability, uh, we believe they incorporated into the people who were already here. And for that, according to the archaeologists and the skeptics, we are racist. Literally been called racist yeah. because of that. So that's the way. That's our summary. We think the earliest people were Denisovan. Um, Denisovan, Neanderthal, modern human hybrids. The uh, Salutrians were probably Denisovan hybrids with modern um, humans. The Denisovans were probably physically larger. There's a lot of good evidence for that. They had genes that showed that some of them were quite autistic. They had autistic genes. Uh, Andrew is really interested in that. Uh, he believes that some of them were prodigies, like some people. So, like, had, a, like an on the spectrum, it would be like an Asperger's type yep, of an autism, like an as, and almost like the one who can sit down at a piano, having never played, and hear some concerto, and then instantly duplicate it. Or, and there are some of them. There are some that can do incredible. So they find that stuff. in the genetic uh, yep. markers. Yep, they and there are even geneticists that believe that autism in us modern humans, or we modern humans, may very well be a carryover from interbreeding with the Denisovans. Mm. That's speculative right now, but that doesn't come from us. That comes from modern geneticists who speculate that. Gotcha. Might mm. be true. 
I want to ask you something. So we did a two-part series on Easter Island where we the first part was all mainstream academic stuff, their theories, what happened, deforestation, overuse of um, uh, resources, that kind of stuff. And the second part, we did the alternative thing where we talked about Robert Schock's work and theories, and we also talked about Thor Heyerdahl. And the genetic part of that is what was interesting to me. So... Um, the genetics that they found within the the Rapa Nui people were 75% Polynesian, Melanesian, that whole area over yeah. there. And then 10 or 15% was European from when the Europeans came, the Dutch. I think it, Jakob Ragavin okay. was the first, first person there, and then all the yeah. Europeans started coming. Um, and then 5 to 10% was South American. So Thor, yeah. the, Thor Heyerdahl's theory was that they made the rafts, which he did in the famous documentary Cone Tiki, a lot of local stuff, trees, brushes, reeds, that kind of stuff, and floated all the way from the coast of Chile to Easter Island. I don't think it was Easter Island. I think it was a little bit further. But yeah. um, to prove that ancient people could get around and they could get around right. decent, de- uh, decently. Um, but my question is, so do you think that there you're talking about people coming over from Australia and that region over there that's similar to what same he, thing he was talking about it's and, the same thing and if you exact look too thing. geologically anybody can do this if you go onto Google Earth there are almost looks like submerged mountaintops that connect South America and it's like a straight line that goes all the way through Easter Island all the way over to that region over there where you have Australia and stuff so Possibly the younger Dryas uh, era when, before when things were not the sea level was not as high that there yeah. could have been not yeah. not necessarily land bridge but maybe it wasn't as deep and as daunting island it, hopping yeah exactly island hopping yeah so I, I I look at stuff like that but do you think that that's a possibility and it's if, not just a possibility it's now okay. proven that there is a tribe in the middle of Brazil in the Amazon they're pretty prim they remain primitive when I say primitive I don't mean that as a slur I have to say that I mean it as they choose to remain the way they are just like the Hopi choose to remain the way they are but there's a tribe in the middle of brazil that has 100 percent the genetics identical to the very people that you just discussed some of which are in polynesia melanesia micronesia mm-hmm. the australian Abor- aborigines there's no doubt whatsoever that is where they came from none right. now the only the only argument is how they got there Mainstream archaeologists argue that they took a 12,000-mile boat trip, (laughs) and instead of going the 6,000 miles or 5,000 miles just following the stream over in a small boat, they somehow took a boat and they went all around Asia, southeastern Asia. They went up around India. Then they went up around Siberia and then came across Beringia and went down what is today Alaska and Canada and all the Western United States and then went all the way down <laughs> South America. And then when they got to the middle of South America, got off the boats and went over to Brazil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds reasonable. So, again, the North America's first. Uh, right. North American archaeologists say that's the way they had to come over. Uh, they hate that, but that there's just no doubt at all. Now, and both we and Graham Hancock's book, which is called America Before, have this in it. 
uh, and we cite the same stories. Now, when we wrote our book, we were in pretty close contact with Hancock, and he was in pretty close contact with us. Andrew and, and Graham Hancock are co- pretty good buddies. Mm-hmm. We finished our book before Hancock finished his, and, and I'm, not, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that he said, yeah, we got the same stuff as far as that goes. Uh, and we shared information back and forth. Uh, we have a slightly different take on a few things, mm-hmm. uh, but there's just no doubt that, yeah, South America has people in it that came. I just like to call it South Pacific Islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to call it that because it ident- it's kind of all of them clumped together. And basically, sure. <laughs> I say it because in a book that came out in 1990 that we did on Mounds and Edgar Casey, Casey said that people came from South America, the South Pacific Islands around 50,000 B.C., Right. So that's how that's when I started getting interested in that part. So I just call it Pacific Islands. Well, you've so got that, yeah, absolutely. You, and you do have uh, from the younger Dryas before you had Sundaland, which connected Indonesia yeah, to Indy. Australia, yep. and then we know indigenous Australian people are some of the oldest people, modern oldest. Oh, people, absolutely. Uh, even Australopithecus and and some of that stuff. So. When you look at the migration, why not go that way? And you're a psychologist, so I think you can attest to this. As humans, we have this will that you don't really see outside of, I mean, you see animals do some crazy things and stuff. But for the most part, we have this will to manipulate our surroundings as if this was made for us. So we're going to go tackle this. So I don't see any reason why people weren't like, oh, there's an ocean. So what? We're going to cross this ocean or we're going to find a way to, to get across there or um, we take on challenges and, and that's just part of who we are. So I don't, why not? Why Why were those people not in the same mindset? If they're taking down woolly mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and all sorts of crazy <laughs> yeah. stuff, why Why not? Why is a little bit of an uh, ocean journey that much to, to bear? I, I don't see the, the problem there. And I... I think they would have done it deliberately, and I also think it happened by accident all the time. It's like the supposedly the first Vikings were swept over to like Iceland and Greenland and realized there was more there and went back, and they just started taking journeys, and they figured, well, if this is here, we'll just go Eric the Red or something like that, yeah. But I mean, it's like, so I, I don't have any doubt that they, it's like when, when the first Europeans came into America. They just kept going west. Right. They didn't stop. They just kept going and kept going and kept going and because it's right. there. And why not explore because it's there? The fishermen that would have been, I mean, those islands in the South Pacific, fishing is the main thing. They'd be out on boats. They'd get swept over to Antarctica. And you got to, what people, most people just don't know that because they're not a pilot. I'm, I'm also a pilot, but oh, okay. not I. Yeah, I I did that years ago, and it was I decided to become a pilot back in the. You're a real po- 19- a modern polymath, is what you are. Yeah, and <laughs> nineteen. I was going to use it as to try and find unidentified Indian mounds and fly into uh, South America and all, but I realized it was not the best way to find mounds that were covered by trees. Anyway, yeah. uh, people don't realize that cold air is stable. You have less severe storms and cold air. The colder the air is, the more stable it is. The lower the sea levels are, the more stable the air is. And during the last ice age, at the time we're talking about South America being populated in that last ice age, the seas were at least 300 feet lower, if Mm -hmm. not four or 500 feet lower 
So there were many more islands, and the air was quite stable. They didn't have the same storms that we would experience today. So traveling on the ocean was a lot safer, and you could do it on these types of canoes that even Columbus saw. Columbus saw canoes that the Tieno people had that held 150 people on a canoe. Wow. They were ocean-going canoes that went from one island to another. They would go hundreds of miles on these canoes. So sea levels and the air, sea levels were lower, the air was stable, and that ancient world probably had a lot of people traveling all over the place. And because they were on, they, they were a seafaring people, and it was a maritime culture, wherever they were trading, in the places where they were, people would live along the coast, just like they do today. It's mm -hmm. all underwater now. So to, to, to really take this point to something you haven't even talked about, when we did all the research on the Atlantis and all the trips into the Bahamas, a formation was found in a, at 110 feet. At the 110-foot level, there is a shoreline. It's about seven miles off of the island of Bimini. Mm -hmm. There is a shoreline that, that Florida State University's Underwater Archaeology Department identified as the 10,000 B.C. shoreline, which was the time Atlantis was destroyed, according to Plato, right. roughly Nin then. 9,600, yeah. 9,600. Casey says 10,000. Plato says 9,600. But anyway, uh, that shoreline is right at the 110-foot mark. And along that shoreline, there was a side scan sonar project done. And that side scan sonar project identified this mile long formation of square and rectangular forms on the bottom made out of stone. Mm. There's roughly three rows of 50 of these formations wow. right on that shoreline. Yeah, we don't many rows. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's all it's the Bimini Road's about six miles toward Bimini Jeez. from here. Close and the Bimini Road's only in the Bimini Road's in about twenty feet of water, depending right. on what where the tide is. But this is right at the ten thousand BC shoreline with uh the history channel. My wife and I dove this. It's all it's stone formations. So when you're actually down there, you see this square formation that is made out of stone, looks like it's a building foundations. And then you and it's covered with coral. It's got stuff growing in the middle where it looks like a roof collapsed. It's got sand in the middle. Then you have a pure white sandy bottom for about 50 feet. And then you hit another square and rectangular formation. Then there's pure white sand for another 50 feet and you hit another one. And this goes on. And there's over 50 of these in, a, in three straight rows along that. Some of that film is on a History Channel show we did on uh, his, it was uh, a Mystery Quest that we were on okay. a couple episodes. Yeah, you've been on History Channel, Discovery Channel. Oh, we've been on. Yeah. But, <laughs> so the Atlantis, the A word, I used that word one time in Denisovan Origins, and I used that just simply, and we call it the A word. Now, Hancock hmm. uses it a bunch of times right. in his book, uh, America Before, because all of this stuff, everything like the Younger Dryas event, uh, the, coming, uh, the coming and the destruction of the Clovis people, all of that coincides with the date of Atlantis. 
that both Plato and Edgar Casey, and frankly, there were others who wrote about it too. Uh, they all gave that same date. Right. And that's a taboo. The A word is taboo in archaeology. As soon as you say that, even though we don't say Atlantis existed, we believe there was an unknown maritime culture, and Plato called it Atlantis. We think it was all over the place in 10,000 BC. Yeah. Where you would find it is at 110 feet down off of islands, and that's okay. where these formations were found. Yeah, we've done a, for one of the other channels we run, we did a top five video on likely locations. And at that time that the the hot topic was the recot structure of the eye of the Sahara. Um, oh, yeah. But the, our number one from what everything that I've seen was I chose the Azores because that's the convergence yeah. of three tectonic plates. And you could see where there are submerged mountains there as well. So I, I see no reason why that couldn't have been maybe like a hub. Plus, it's between the um, you know, the entrance of uh, Africa and uh, Europe, between Spain and yep. uh, Africa. Yeah, the Straits of Gibraltar. Straits of Gibraltar. Pillars of Hercules. Right. Exactly. And, and to be honest, that's what the conclusion we also made was that it seems like it was just the name of this massive civilization that was connected. Maybe there was a ton of ports or a ton of different uh, sub uh, you know, sub sub areas where they were all connected in some way, but uh, yeah, so I, that makes a lot of sense to me. I don't really think there was one real main hub that's we're just missing no. it. But uh, well, Plato called it an island empire a right. couple times. Casey called it an island empire. Plato made the case that you could hop from island and island to reach from island to island to reach an opposite continent, which everybody uh, considered was Ignatius Donnelly took that as the yeah. Americas. Uh, but of course, everybody's looking for the center city, which Plato described in detail. Right. Uh, and it was a circular city. But what they always miss is that it was on an island that was 340 miles long by 200 and some miles wide. And that center city was at the bottom of it and had a mountain range at the top. But they keep centering on uh, Santorini or the island of Thera, same yeah, thing. Yep. Near that's not Sicily. even what is that? That was um, six hundred. Six hundred. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's it's because it's a circle and it's in the Mediterranean. Everybody says, "Oh, he must have been in the Mediterranean." But Plato was very very specific, and then it was outside the Pillars of Hercules in the true ocean. Uh, and that it was an island empire. And he said there was an island right there. There was an island right there right. called Spartel. Uh, and it is now below the surface. Uh, that's been well documented. But there were lots of other islands from the uh, to the Azores, and the Canaries, and then basically over to the Americas. Sure. Andrew believe, Collins believes that the center city of Atlantis is in a specific place in Cuba. Uh, and we've written about that quite a bit, and that's in a bunch of old books and articles. Well, the other interesting uh, thing of, is the, yeah. the 9600 BC date is the same dating of Gobekli Tepe. Um, yes. So was there a connection there? I don't know, but it's just it's it's there was obviously yeah, it's it's, interesting. there were civilizations and megalithic building going on at that time. Yeah. Um, quite a coincidence. So also people that are interested in Atlantis and want to research what could be true based on descriptions. You can look in Plato's dialogues in the Critias and the Timaeus. Uh, also look up Solon, who was the third generation, uh, uh, or the, the ancestor of Plato. So you can check that out. 
But uh, so let's wrap it up here, and then I would do like an extra ten minutes on a couple other topics right. we didn't get to that might not be related to this. So, is there anything you want to plug, or because we've got below no, the video, are, we've uh, we've got your uh, uh, your website, and we've also got your uh, the link to your book. So, uh, if people want to look at it, uh, the information's there. I don't really plug anything. I just like to go out and give information and. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, it'd be great if you buy the book, but the truth is I don't make much money from the book. It's, it's trivial. Uh, so just keep looking. But We're buy, really but buy the book. In, just buy the well, book. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. And shout out to that. Inner Traditions. So they do, I love all their authors and the topics and everything that they do. So we appreciate Good them Good mind well. expanding stuff. Yeah. yeah, and you can uh, subscribe to our channel, please. Check us out at Patreon, patreon.com slash Mike Amores. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive content, audio, and videos. And go to MikeAmoresMindEscape.com. Uh, As you can see there at the bottom throughout the whole episode, we are on all social media platforms. So we're going to do an extra few minutes here with Gregory on some other topics. If you want to check that out, go to our Patreon. But uh, thanks for coming on, Gregory. I, we'd like to have you on in the future, too, because it seems like you're a wealth of a lot of the topics we we talk about so we can maybe do that another time but uh appreciate you coming on and it's been a fascinating conversation i appreciate the opportunity and your patreon thing let me mention one thing i'm going to tell you guys in this little 10 minute segment the deepest secrets that the native american uh, mound builders had i will tell you the <laughs> deepest stuff it's gone in the new book uh i'm i'm and you're laughing about it no i'm not I'm, i love this this I'll, is I'll this is awesome Thank All you. Right. Yeah, now that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, if you're watching this live, have a good day. And if you want to see more, check us out on Patreon. So, again, thank you for coming on and uh, check out his book. Thank you, sir. Peace.